we help companies essentially do an emissions profile which allows them to accurately measure what their carbon emissions are. And the first step is we actually work on reducing. So not even talking about carbon credits. What is my emissions today? And what can I do to reduce them? Maybe that creates an offset, maybe it doesn't, but it's still gonna reduce and that reduction is critical. Now, carbon offsets allow different companies to essentially accelerate doing things that wouldn't otherwise be financially sustainable. These days, companies, both large and small, seem to be becoming more concerned about their responsibility to care for the environment. The questions for any organization that wants to sustain the planet become, how do we know our carbon impact? And once we know, what do we do to offset it? Brent Thumler, the Managing Director of Software and Technology at Radical, explains what Radical is working on to help companies take better care of the environment. Enjoy this episode. Brent, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, real quick, we're going to spell it out for our audience. Radical is spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E, and they do something that is near and dear to my heart. As you've listened on this show, I care quite a bit about the environment. This is a company that is looking to help the environment. We have heard about this marketplace about buying and selling carbon offsets. I think we should start there because understanding that makes it easier to understand why it's valuable to understand how to identify your own. Give us an idea. How does this process work? It makes, when you read about it loosely and you don't dive too deep into it, the literature makes it sound like it's like stock trading almost. There is like on-screen markets where you can do trading like that in different jurisdictions. There's also kind of more opaque markets where transactions are taking place between like second parties and third parties and stuff like that. But if we go to where the start of a carbon offset is, it really begins with measurement. You know, there's some sort of activity that's taking place. Let's say it's moving equipment without using electric powered vehicles. You know, you're you're a diesel powered fleet or something like that. You make a change like a green activity and you start using maybe electric powered vehicles. There's a reduction in the amount of greenhouse gases produced there. And in some jurisdictions and in some different areas, there's registries which have protocols which essentially give us the rules and regulations around the creation of an offset. They kind of tell you what qualifies, what isn't, what evidence is needed to support that, what calculations are being used. And essentially using that protocol, you can then generate offsets or emission credits for kind of different activities. How does it get to the point where I have to buy them or I can sell them? Give us an idea of where, how to close that loop. Yeah. So to kind of close the loop completely, you're doing an activity you kind of you know make this reduction you then work with a third party registry to then kind of verify and list those carbon credits and now they're a tradable commodity and now they can be traded on that exchange they can be used towards your own environmental footprint maybe you've made a commitment towards net zero or carbon neutrality and you've done emissions footprinting you can then apply that towards your profile or you can sell it to any other kind of buyers in an open market why would i as a company purchase a carbon offset or sell it. So, you know, I always try to help our audience understand something that maybe they're not too familiar with. Let's take, for example, let's imagine Brent, you and I are a company and we're going to make, you know, something simple. We make cell phone cases. Now, part of making cell phone cases is we're going to make some pollution that's going to happen. Give us the idea. Like, so why am I creating or trying to buy carbon offsets to offset the carbon that I'm creating or possibly emitting? 
that really talks towards like market pressures. Years past, there really wasn't a collective kind of consciousness or awareness of what my carbon footprint was. And what you're starting to see now is you're starting to see consumers, you're starting to see commitments by like really big kind of supply chains towards net zero. And so as this kind of rise in the collective consciousness of consumers, we see a greater and greater demand for people to understand their carbon footprint, to reduce that carbon footprint, and then what can't be reduced to then offset or, you know, removals. There's many different types of carbon credits, but essentially you're seeing these kind of like voluntary pressures, even starting to become more regulatory pressures in certain areas as well. Yeah. And our title sponsor, Salesforce, obviously cares a lot about this. They put, you know, they bought a big Super Bowl ad kind of talking about how they want to focus on preserving earth. And give us an idea for layman, you know, because if someone was outside of this ecosystem, they would say, okay, so I make, let's say I am my cell phone maker. I, unfortunately, it's just a byproduct of me manufacturing these goods. I have to, I create carbon. So I'm going to put the, my carbon, or I'm going to try to purchase carbon offsets in the marketplace, who buys it? And then give us the full life cycle. How does the earth benefit from that? Because, you know, if someone was a skeptic or a cynic, they would say, you guys are just trading. You just, this is like a fake financial product. You guys are just trading and making money off of, but, you know, I want to help them understand how this actually then plays out in another company possibly saying, Hey, you guys created carbon, but we're going to pull it out of the earth. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to plant trees or whatever their move is. You know, I want to close that loop so our audience gets to understand like this is just the mechanism. And then the next step is, of course, how the earth actually benefits. If you actually look a step first in kind of where we work, we help companies essentially do an emissions profile, which allows them to accurately measure what their carbon emissions are. And the first step is we actually work on reducing. So not even talking about carbon credits. What is my emissions today? And what can I do to reduce them? And maybe that creates an offset. Maybe it doesn't, but it's still going to reduce. And that reduction is critical. Carbon offsets allow different companies to essentially accelerate doing things that wouldn't otherwise be financially sustainable. And like a good example of this is with the Well Done Foundation. This is an organization that we partnered with. What they do is they will operate on a voluntary basis. So they get donations from people to help plug abandoned methane leaking wells across the US. And so there's thousands of these wells just sitting there leaking methane in the atmosphere. And methane is like five or six times, you know, more potent than typical like a carbon greenhouse gas. And essentially they had no way to fund these activities. So if we take a look at what we've been able to partner with them, we've been able to work with the American Carbon Registry to produce a protocol that then makes it monetizable so that they can then fund the reductions and kind of amplify this impact to try and amplify the amount of methane that's being reduced, being emitted. That is awesome. So for those who weren't tracking what Brent was talking about, he's talking about how essentially a function that might have been like a, a nonprofit's function, right, to plug these methane pockets or leaks, a methane gas is five times more, was it the right word, dense? It's like five times thicker than carbon dioxide? It's a larger global warming potential is the technical term. So the, an organization like this would typically not be able to, you know, it would be challenging. They have to get donors to help fund the project. But what Brent is saying is because they, because a company can measure how much they're polluting, they can also put that to a monetary value and then the companies that are offsetting can 
that can be transacted to them. So now they have a way to fund a green project, which sounds freaking cool because that's always where one of the th- the big challenges of um, of any eco policy or program is that typically it didn't address how are the costs going to get covered? Yeah. And the same kind of process just repeats itself again and again, like another like really impactful project we do both investment as well as helping measure is the deployment of cook stoves into like third world countries. So we're in like a remote third world country in Senegal, a family lives in like a small kind of communal hut and they burn charcoal, they burn dirty fuels in this hut to, you know, cook their food and stuff like that. Well, we can give them a high efficiency, like really small, very cheap cook stove that greatly increases like the amount of burned material. So it reduces a lot of the local air pollution in that area. The health of the household becomes a lot higher because we have less sooty carbon emissions into the household. And then these then also produce carbon offsets because we're abating an activity. We're preventing something else from being released into the atmosphere. And then that can repeat again. You look at it, kind of an afforestation project. So planting trees, we're putting trees, we're committing that these trees are going to be like in place for a very long period of time. They're not going to be burned or anything like that. Some of the previous guests that we've had on our show have talked about how major companies are really moving towards and they care quite a bit about ecological footprint, how they are going to be part of or contribute to the, you know, the well-being of the earth in the future. One of our previous episodes was Lisa Edwards. She is the president of Diligent and they do a government compliance software. And she was saying like, that's the number one thing that her customers are talking about. Give us an idea. Who is talking to you now? Because this is still a new industry. I mean, I know it's been around, but it's not like been widely adopted. Not every company has stepped forward and said, we're going to participate in this program. We're going to try to fund green initiatives. It hasn't happened yet. I think there's momentum there. But give us an idea. What are the types of companies coming in? Who is wanting to do this? What are some of the conversations you're having? Because I'm sure there's pretty fascinating things that um, these companies are trying to accomplish. Yeah, we're, we're seeing interest from like a wide variety of organizations. We see a ton of interest in our climate smart product, which essentially allows like small and medium businesses to get their emissions footprint and then just come up with a reduction plan using our advisors and then implementing that. And those types of organizations are everything from, we have a brewery, Bench Brewing, they wanted to get towards kind of like a carbon neutral certification. And so they approach, they enter the program and they start discovering where their different emissions come from, not only just in producing their product, but maybe moving that product to its consumers, those, those difficult kind of emission types to track. And then you see like really large organizations big multinationals that have made these commitments that then are like, how do we actually do this? What is our accounting software that's going to enable us to do this? What is the team of experts to help me kind of set my boundaries and my scope? So we see a broad range of clients, both on kind of understanding my footprint, supporting the commitments that we've made, and then also purchasing offsets. We kind of see a a really, really widespread of different customers. Brent, Super fascinating. Some of the things you're talking about, it's great to see the momentum of companies trying to adopt this. We're hearing it from the big corporate side. It sounds like you deal more with small businesses, but of course you deal with larger organizations as well. But give us an idea of how this technically works. Because when I hear you say like one of the big leading things that you can do for a company is helping them identify what is their carbon footprint and what steps they can do themselves to start minimizing it to begin with. So they don't have to you know, buy offsets or something like that. 
it sounds like that would be a very sensor heavy software system, right? Where I need to plug sensors into all these different things, but you might be approaching it a different way. How, how are you technically able to help a company recognize what their current carbon footprint is? Yeah, there definitely are sensors involved. Really what it starts with, when we look at a footprint for organization, we look at something called the GHG protocol, which is a standard for an accounting principle to help an organization understand their footprint. We may collect information from kind of current existing data sets that the customer has access to. This may be utility bills. This may be fuel data from like a fleet management platform. This may be shipping and receiving information from different shippers where they tell them, you know, these are how many pounds of good you move from point A to point B. So we kind of try and gather that information that's already there. And then we do facilitate that with some IoT. And this is kind of an emerging trend in the space where can we place these IoT devices where there is an unmetered power consumption to be able to collect real-time information. Really, it's an aggregation of that data that those different IoT things collect. It could be sensors that are clamped around a power meter. It could be flow meters on different types of things. In kind of some more of our advanced areas where we talk about methane emissions, they could be LIDAR scans using FLIR and other technologies that are kind of scanning a well site. And then they're able to kind of calculate how many tons of emissions are leaving from that well site or those different kind of leaking fugitive type emissions. What about companies that have, for example, where they might have remote locations? You are in... um... Calgary, Alberta. I've been to the, I didn't go to the oil sands, but I worked for a company that owned oil, the oil sands, like up in Fort, Fort McMurray, I believe is what it's called. They talked about how isolated it is. Like there's like no internet there. How do you get the data from places like that? Can you get it from places like that? Or is it more of a, it's more of a batch process. Like you can't get this information in real time. So it has to batch process and you can figure it out over time. Or is this more real time feeds that are sending this data in? In those like really remote places, and that ties back to like that Senegal example, you're kind of doing these reading snapshots over a period of time. So using a map application, maybe on like an offline device that we have, you're going out to the field and you're collecting that information in an offline state. You're collecting, hey, this is what the meter says. I'm taking a photo of that. I'm collecting that. This is the current state of how much fluid is in the tank. And then I come back, you know, three months later, I come back a year later and we kind of have those batch sets of data. So there definitely is a challenge there. And usually what we do is we look at aggregating the data sets that are collected over a period of time. No, that makes sense. Give us an idea. How long does it take to plug this, all this data in? And then after it's all plugged in, how long before I get a result? We're dealing with massive, like you talk about data and big data. This is huge amounts of data. I think at last kind of count, we had over like 600,000 pieces of evidence in our system or something like that. And what you need to do when we're developing these carbon credits that are a tradable commodity, you can't just make an assumption that they exist. So what you have to do is you have to make an assertion that, you know, this is the make model serial, this is the volume. And then I need a piece of evidence to support that. And that piece of evidence could be a photo, it could be a capture from a SCADA system, it could be whatever. And so ETL processing, is a huge part of our software in terms of being able to rapidly bring that information in. And then it leads to quality control. So that's where the software then helps the organization go through a quality control process to make sure the wrong thing is rejected and the right thing is passed forward. And then we then aggregate all of that information because maybe you have, I think at last count, we had 11 million acres of farmland in our system. So this is a ton of farmland that's sitting there sequestering carbon because of a change in farming practices. And so each one of these fields themselves maybe isn't profitable to the generate a carbon credit from, but when you bring them all together, it starts to create a profitable kind of 
system for all the farmers and everybody involved. And so that's where the power of the software takes over again, aggregating all of that data to then produce kind of carbon offsets. And that time period varies based upon the protocol. It could be as short as a week or it could be up to a year. It really depends on kind of that data collection interval as well as the protocol itself. When you were saying the ETL process, I automatically start defaulting to probably some of the dirtiest polluters. They're probably using systems that are relatively, I would say that their data is probably not very cloud accessible. Like if I'm operating out in the oil sands or I'm operating an oil rig in the Arctic Circle, there's no real way to shift my data over to you. Like that's pretty hard. Yeah, oil is a good example because it may even be purposely air gap systems, right? Like you may have a system it has the data that's needed, but it's air gapped from the internet due to security concerns, right? Even though, you know, this is a, a something that has the data, it's purposely been air gapped so that that SCADA system or that kind of control system is disconnected. In other cases, there just isn't a measurement tool. You know, perhaps you're using tugboats in your harbor and you switch them to like electric. How do you really start to measure that data, right? And so that's where those kind of like IoT devices can come in. Yeah. I mean, I can see that the, the challenge is going to be ever going and... If you can't make it, or if the industry can't make it easier to do, it really doesn't have as much legs to, to really take off and be what it potentially can be. When you think about for yourself, what do you think for the future of whether it's radical or this industry, carbon offset energy, energy trading, what do you see for benefits if this becomes more, let's say, widely adopted, mainstream adopted, more companies start investing and in saying, hey, I want to... I want to conserve, or I want to contribute to this program because I want to contribute to the ecosystem of people trying to save whatever green initiative that they're wanting to focus on. In the fall, we had COP26, which was a major conference that's kind of continued to evolve over the years. And I think there was really some momentum that started there. If you look at all of the commitments made by banks, made by kind of large supply chains of these multinational organizations, the number of covered area of the world and population and GDP is actually quite high towards a net zero commitment. It's in like the 89%. So if you essentially have the world saying that I've committed 89% to be net zero, and it was $130 trillion is what they said. So this is almost like another industrial revolution that is going to take place over the next period of time. And where is radical and where is this going to be? I think there's so many possibilities. There's so much space. There's so much more accuracy. There's so many problems that need to be solved. Going back to like your cell phone example, there's the emissions of your business in terms of just operating. But then there's also the emissions of that case itself. Where did the materials come from? It come from? What was their emission source? How did they travel to your factory? What commissions were used at your factory to produce that cell phone case? It was then shipped to somebody. And so every bit of one of those supply chain things needs to have information. So you can see this is a really big scale problem. And then for yourself, how do you think about making this easier? Because, you know, I said it loosely a moment ago, but I, I do believe that, which is if your technology is not easy to adopt or implement, it will have a harder time being adopted and implemented. I mean, it's not, I think that's pretty, you know, standard. How do you approach making this easier, simpler, um, more widely accepted? I'm sure when you first talk to, let's say, someone who's considering implementing Radical, they probably have some hesitancies or they have some, uh, maybe a lot of questions they just want to ask you, like, Brent, hey, I don't know, man, this sounds like it's going to take forever. And you got to, you got to knock those rebuttals down. How are you thinking about making this easier than ever? Yeah. So, the first thing is kind of some training. And that's something that we do is we help people understand the nomenclature in the space just so that they can operate efficiently. Then from there, we look at automations. 
right now, users need to collect data from different places. How can we continue to build automation tools that automatically ingress this data? We, we don't want to move towards estimations because if we start estimating, we're very, very difficult to be able to then see the actual impact of our reductions based upon an estimate. So the more automations, the more IoT devices, the more API integrations, the more kind of people that come together in an ecosystem that create a platform for us to bring and pull data into can create an easier time for a user to come on board and create a footprint quicker. If you're in software and you're the managing director of software and technology, so clearly you've been coding products or been developing products for a long time. How did you get down the industry of like, I don't even know what to classify Radical as. I don't want to just peg it to like carbon emissions monitoring software because I know you have a bigger bigger goal than that. It's like it's like green tech. I don't know what to call it, but how would you classify yourself? I always find dif- difficulty there when you're looking at the drop down and it's like software and technology, earth sciences, environmental. I'm like, oh, we're kind of like all of these. Where I started actually was in 2008. Uh, actually, even goes back to that. It goes farther back than this, 2005 or six. I was working at an ISV. And uh, a client came in that was like, hey, in Alberta, they had just created this carbon offset system. And they came in with a bunch of banker boxes. And they were like, I need a system to help me with this. And it was the first time I was ever exposed to it. And it kind of was like, wow, like this is really interesting. This is a simple kind of like document management system that is also then moving towards a better earth. And, And I actually left the ISV that I was at and kept in touch with one of the people that was there. And I do a lot of outdoor stuff. I'm a big skier, climber, all that kind of stuff. And in that Rocky Mountains, I'm seeing the impact myself. In like the 10, 15 years I've been in the mountains, I've seen the glaciers move. I've seen the weather patterns change. All of this stuff is happening. This global warming is is really kind of the biggest challenge facing us. And so I was like, how do I get back involved in this again? And I was able to eventually connect back up with some kind of people that were still working there. And I was able to kind of come on board and help kind of accelerate this journey of reducing emissions. When something is new, people tend to not always see the possible implications or use cases down the road. So were you able to see that right away from carbon offsets? Or were you like, eh, it sounds kind of hokey. I don't think it's going to work. I was not 100% sure of what it was. I was super young at the time. I was in like my early 20s. I was targeting other sorts of things and stuff like that. And I didn't really understand the impact that it would have on people becoming, you know, those cook stoves helping people in that third world country have healthier air in their home. So I didn't really fully understand the impact. And really the impact hit probably in like 2015. And that's when I started to see, wow, this is really something that can help change the way in which we're working forward. The pressure's building. You know, we've got all of this information telling us that we're going to hit an irreversible point. And I was like, how do we help accelerate or prevent this from happening? I agree with you. I'm a person that's, I've said it many times on the show, I'm a beach lover. You're a mountain lover. Either way, we need the earth to work for us in order for us to have the most fun that we can have. And I think about when I was younger and I would talk about the environment, people were like, eh, it's too far away. But now that the ocean is, so like I'll, I'm in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. If you take a look at North Carolina on a map, you'll see that there's a chain of islands that's jut off to the east. That's considered the Outer Banks. And it's like a thin strip of sand, basically, that creates barrier islands. And people have built homes there. And I remember, in two, like you said, in 2000, when you said that this sea level is rising, they'd be like, okay, whatever. But then the houses started getting eroded away and chipped away and knocked away. And every year more dredging had occurred. And so it started hitting people like in the pocketbook a little bit where they were like, wow, 
maybe there is a problem. You know, maybe there's a problem. Unfortunately, it took a bunch of homes to get washed away for people to say, okay, now we're having a problem. Although there's still a lot of people that are in this mindset where if they don't see the impact, they don't believe the impact. Like they just, they just hear it's just warnings. But I'm glad, like you said, like there's companies actively investing in this. They know that it's coming and they want to see something better for, for the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's hard to see the change over a short time period, right? Like we're talking about 20 years there. And yeah, it, sea level rise is definitely something that's going to impact like a huge percentage of the population because they all live along coasts. The amount of displacement that's about to come is pretty substantial. If for anyone who doesn't believe me, you can, you're can you welcome to go take a look at the real estate listings 20 years ago to the amount of homes listed for sale on the Outer Banks today on the coast. There are fewer. That's just it. Because no one wants to, once it gets washed away, of course, nobody builds there. Brent, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing some of the technical aspects of carbon emissions, evaluation, analysis, and then of course, trading and how it's going to impact the world. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Brent, this is where we start asking you questions about your life outside of work so that our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? Yep. All right. You've already said you're an avid skier and rock climber, and you've also referred to those mountains as the Rockies. Now, I know someone else from Calgary, and they always say the Canadian Rockies are better than the American Rockies. Our producer, Jana, is from Denver, Colorado. Why are the (laughs) Canadian Rockies better than the American Rockies? Oh, man, that's a super difficult question. Why are ours better? Because I go to both. I go to Colorado. I've climbed like out of Boulder. I go on ski trips to like Summit County. So I'm not going to say that they're actually better. I'm going to say they're better in each in their own way. One's a lot higher elevation. One gets a ton more snow. Yeah, let's let's just leave it as a tie between those two. Uh, for those who are not familiar, which one gets more snow? The Canadian Rockies. When you ski, how good of a skier are you? Are you a black diamond skier? Are you like me? Like I can barely go down the blues. Like I don't want to get hurt. <laughs> I have a long history with skiing. I actually started volunteering on a ski patrol when I was like 18 years old. So I've been a ski patroller for 15 years in part-time or volunteer ways. So I can pretty much go anywhere I need to, maybe just not stylishly like a lot of other people. <laughs> hey, listen, if you can if you can use the whole mountain, you're already winning in my book, man. That's awesome. You mentioned, you know, some of your stories from other countries. You mentioned Senegal. Do you travel the world a lot or did you travel the world a lot back when it was available to you? Yeah, I certainly tried to travel and take in kind of different cultures and stuff like that. I really enjoy traveling. I've gone on some really neat sailing trips in the Southern Pacific, kind of visiting some very remote places to kind of interact with people that maybe don't see, you know, a boat more than once or twice a year and kind of delivering school supplies and stuff like that. It's it's pretty interesting to see the varied culture of humanity and kind of where we all sit. Oh man, this Brent, this is, you're like one of my favorite guys. I mean, you're a real humanitarian and adventurer all built into one. When you say you sail to remote places, like how remote are we talking? The most remote kind of stuff is between French New Caledonia, Vanuatu and Fiji and that kind of America or the island chains that kind of exist down there. How many miles not is that between those three stops? The closest people are on the space station to us when it was flying overhead. That's probably an easier way to think about it. <laughs> so this is isolated. Yeah, they're isolated. Like the longest open passage, I think, was like maybe 10 days. How did you get involved in doing trips like this? So it all ties back to actually our founder at Radical. He close to 10 years ago, took his kids out of school, bought a sailboat, and then sailed from Vancouver to Australia. 
with his kids for six months. And then I helped him crew it back uh, for a few days or a few months. Hey, listen, I'm sitting here listening to your stories. I'm sitting here in the suburbs as my kids play soccer outside in the yard. And I'm like, dang, this guy is like <laughs> the things you've done are pretty, pretty darn impressive. I want to say thank you, first of all, for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your story. I thought you did a great job of explaining something that is probably not, most people aren't too familiar with. I'm just making an assumption, but I thought you did a great job explaining that really clearly. And man, I think what you're doing and what your company's doing is super ambitious. And I want it to work out because I think there's something, one of those things, like you said earlier, if it, if it does work out, of course, more companies will be able to participate in funding the projects that are going to help us all. Yeah, exactly. I'm super happy to be on board and to kind of share our story and what we're doing at Radical. And I love to kind of help move everybody towards this low carbon economy. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks. Thanks.